Now, to understand Islam, you need to understand what they believe and what they do. Every Muslim basically does five things. These are what we call the five pillars. These are the five practices. Uh, the word in Arabic is deen. These are their deen that all Muslims must do to be good Muslims. It's very simple. And this is one of the great attractions of Islam. It's very easy to do these five things. But then there are six beliefs that they must believe as well. What they call iman in Arabic. What we're going to do is we're going to look at those five practices and then we're going to go and look at the six beliefs and we're going to ask some questions about them. We're going to show you why is it that Muslims do these things and what is it we need to say in response. So let's start with the first of the deen, the first of the practices and of course right at the very beginning is the statement of faith, what they call the shahada. The shahada, which basically is la illa illa la. Now, that basically just means there is no God but Allah. And you'll find that when you look in the Quran, in Surah 2, Ayah 255, in Surah 28, Ayah 88, and in Surah 112, Ayah 1 to 4. Now, what do I mean by Surah and Ayah? Surah means book. Ayah means verse. So when you look at the Quran, you will see there's 114 books, 114 surahs, in which each one has a number of ayahs. Every time I say surah, ayah, I mean book and verse. But hold on a minute. That's only half the shahada, isn't it? That's not the full shahada. There is no God but Allah. There's no God but God, you might say. What's interesting is you will not find the entire shahada in its full form in the Quran. Because there's a second part of the Quran which says, well, Muhammadu Rasulullah and Muhammad is his prophet. So you need to add the two together that there is no God but God and Muhammad is his prophet. The two together are the entire shahda. So why if it's that important, if it's the first pillar of faith, if it's the statement of faith, if this is what every Muslim must say before, when, before they go to the Hajj, before they enter into Mecca, if this is what every person must say when they are converted to Islam, if this is their statement of faith, then why is it not in its entirety there in the Quran? Because because that second part, there Muhammad is a prophet of God, is found in Surah 33, Ayah 40, in Surah 48, Ayah 29, and Surah 64, Ayah 8, separate from the earlier part. Seeming to suggest that this was probably added on at a later date. Hold that under your hat, because we'll talk more about that in some of the other pillars yet to come. What we do know is that the first time that we see the entire formula brought together, what we call the Mohammedan formula, that there is no God but God and Muhammad is his prophet, is not till 691. Muhammad died in 632. In 691, when you look at the Dome of the Rock there in Jerusalem, when you look at the inner ambulatories along the top, you will see the entire Mohammedan formula. There is no God but God and Muhammad is his prophet. And that's the earliest documentation we have for that Basically, for that, that uh, reference or the Shahada itself. But that's 60 years after Muhammad died. We also find it on a few coins 
uh, that were coined or minted in Kufa in 692. This is during the reign of Abdul al-Malik. Abdul al-Malik, who is the Marwan Caliph in the Marwanid family, who came into power in 685 and reigned till 705. And it is he that puts that up on the Dome of the Rock. It is he that puts that in the coins, which seems to suggest that it is he that initiate the, initiated the Mohammedan formula. That's interesting. We do also know that when you look at the inscriptions that were found, a man named uh, Yehuda Neville, who did his work out of the Jer uh, University of Jerusalem, he went all through the Syrian desert and the Jordanian desert in the seventh looking for 7th century inscriptions. And he found hundreds of inscriptions. He found inscriptions on, on rocks. He found inscriptions on the dam there in Taif. And when he looked at these inscriptions, he found no Mohammedan formula on any of them. He looked at the caliphal protocols. These are the official documents written by the caliphs through the Sufiani period that began with Muawiyah in 661, all the way up until 680s when the Marwan first uh, Marwan the family came to power and the Marwanid dynasty out of the Umayyad dynasty then took over. And he looked at all these protocols and there was no reference to God as one and Muhammad as a prophet until until 691. And in 691. Suddenly, overnight, all the caliphal protocols started with the Shahada. The Shahada seemed to have been created in 691, at least from what the documentary evidence and the archaeological evidence that we've been able to find. Ah, that's a curiosity, isn't it? Because this is supposedly in the Quran that was given to Muhammad between 610 and 632. This was completely canonized and finished by 632, according to all Muslim experts. Now, all Muslims tell us that in 632, after, once Muhammad died, there was no further revelation. This was then compiled according to Islamic jurisprudence, and all Islamic history tells us that this was compiled during the time of Uthman in around 650, the third caliph. So certainly the Mohammedan formula and the Shahada should be, have been complete by that time. Why is it the first documentation outside of the Quran that we can find for the entire Shahada is not till 691. Could it be that this was added later? Could it be that Muhammad was finally incorporated as a prophet at a later date? We're going to talk more about that when we talk about Muhammad in, the fu in a future lecture. When we look at Muhammad, we'll unpack that a little bit more. That's just for you to know at this time. So why do they say the Shahada? Well, they should say it basically out of obedience. It's a way of giving honor to God and honor to his prophet, his messenger. That is said when someone is first born, as they is said first in their right ear, then it is repeated in their left ear. When they convert, as I said earlier, anytime you convert to Islam, you must go to a mosque, you must either go to in front of an imam, and you must make that statement. By virtue of doing that, you've become a Muslim. And when you die, it is then said to you by someone, a cleric. Now, there's only one, there's no God but God. The first part, that's interesting. There's no God but God. What God are they talking about? Well, the God that we see there referred to in the Shahada is Allah himself. I'm going to hold on to that because I think we need to unpack that a little bit more. When we look at the six beliefs, I'm going to zero in on who Allah is because we're starting to find out some things. And I have questions myself concerning who that God is and what his name is and what the significance of that name. So let's hold on to that because we do know that that God is, not, is a particular God that does not is not found in the scriptures.
We'll come back to that. Let's go on to what about Muhammad. In fact, I'm going to hold on to Muhammad a bit too because I want to talk about more about Muhammad when we have the lecture on Muhammad. What we do know is that Muhammad, the man that we talk about in this, in this book here, the man named Muhammad to whom this book was revealed, has a lot of problems. We do know that he does not fulfill the four criteria of prophethood. The four criteria, which are very simply, that every prophet must be in the prophetic race, which is the race of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Every prophet must do, uh, receive revelation, which corresponds with earlier revelation. Every prophet must do something to prove he's a prophet. He must do a miracle or do a prophecy to show the world that he is a prophet. And every prophet must know God's name, must know God's personal name, his holy name. The name that we see in the scriptures that was given to Moses before he went to Egypt, there in Exodus 3 verse 14, as Yahweh. Now that name is not found in the Shahada. The name that we're given in the Shahada is Allah. We've got a problem with that name. We'll talk about that later. We've got a problem with Muhammad, because he doesn't fulfill any of those four criteria, does he? Now, we're going to unpack that a little bit more when we get to Muhammad, so we'll go to the next pillar. The next pillar is the Salat. The Salat would be the five prayers. Now, you look at the five prayers and you will see there's a problem again. Because when you open the Quran and you ask, where are these five prayers? You look in Surah 17, Ayah 78, and they refer only to two prayers. The prayer in the morning and the prayer in the evening on either end of the day. If you go further on into the Quran, you will find that uh, a third prayer is added in Surah 2, Ayah 238. So you have the Fajr in the morning, you have the Maghrib in the evening, and then in Surah 2, Ayah 238, a third prayer, what we call the Zur, or the midday prayer, is added. So you have the Fajr, the Zur, and the Maghrib, the three prayers, and that's all you find in the Quran. Ask your Muslim friends how many prayers there to pray a day. And they will say, five. How do we know that? Well, according to the Quran, in Surah 17, Ayah 1, we have the story of the Mi'aj. Mi'aj is the story of the night where Muhammad was woken up in the middle of the night and he was told to go from the great mosque to the farthest mosque. And he was given a winged horse on whose back he rode. And so the winged horse flew from Medina all the way, I'm sorry, this was, yeah, Medina all the way, because this was in 624, from Medina all the way to Jerusalem. And at Jerusalem, he then was, uh, was given, uh, at the rock there in Jerusalem, he then ascended the seven heavens. And he went up to the seventh heaven and he met Allah. And Allah told him that he's to go back down and he's to pray, tell the people there to pray 50 times a day. He went back down to the fifth heaven and he met Moses. Moses says, how many times did Allah tell you to pray? And he said, 50 times. He says, nah, that's too many. See if you can get it down. So he goes back up to Allah and sees if he can get it down. And he brings it down to 45. He comes back to Moses and says, ah, it's still too many. So he goes back and forth between Allah and Moses, between the seventh and the fifth heaven, and brings it down from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 25 to 20 to 10 to 5. Once he gets to five prayers, he comes back to Moses. Moses says, okay, that's enough. Go on back down to earth. And so he goes back on down to earth, back to Jerusalem, back to the, the rock that is there in Jerusalem, which the dome of the rock is built upon. He then gets back onto the wing horse, the burak, and flies on back to Medina. Now that story every Muslim child knows, every Muslim knows, that is the story of the Miraj. When, in 624, Muhammad was given the canonization of five prayers. The curious thing about that is, is Muhammad responsible for those five prayers? 
is Allah responsible for those five prayers? Or is Moses? Seems to me Moses is responsible for the five prayers. But why is it we don't find five prayers in the Quran then? Why is it we only find three? It's not on a problem. Absolutely it's a problem. We only five find the Fajr, the Zur, in the Mihrab, I'm sorry, the Makhrib, the Fajr, Zur, in the Makhrib, in the Quran. You will not find the other two prayers. So where do we find these other two prayers? When were they added? Don't look at the Quran. You're not going to find there. They are not added until Al-Sahih Buhari, Al-Buhari writes it in the 9th century. He died in 870. It's not till 850 to 870, that's almost 200 to 230 years later, that we find the other two prayers added. The other two prayers, as we know as the Ashar and the Isha. The Ashar, which is just before the sundown, and the Isha, which is just before midnight or after, after Maghrib. So the five prayers that every Muslim is to pray, which is the pillar of Islam, the five prayers that supposedly Moses chose for Muhammad as he went back and forth between Allah in 624, those five prayers are not in the Quran. You will not find them written down in their entirety or even named until Al-Buhari in the 9th century. Al-Buhari who never knew Muhammad. Al-Buhari who didn't even live at the time Muhammad. Al-Buhari who lived 230 years later and lived hundreds of miles away. Is that a problem for any of you? It's a big problem for me. I'd like to know why Muhammad didn't know about those five prayers, since the story that surrounds it includes him. Wouldn't you like to know why he didn't know about those five prayers? What we do know is that the Jews prayed three times a day. It seems that they have taken on the Jewish prayers because the Jews prayed in the morning, in the afternoon, and the evening. The exact same three prayers that you find in the Quran are what the Jews prayed. So it stands to reason that along the way, somewhere along the way, someone said, hold on a minute, we can't be praying the same number of prayers that the Jews prayed, let's add two others. And so these two others, the ones we know as Ashar and the Issa, were added much, much later. In fact, possibly two to 230 years later. Yet this is one of the five pillars of Islam. This is the five pillars, one of the five pillars that every Muslim is to follow. And certainly, this is the pillar that every Muslim knows Muhammad supposedly got when he was there in 624, going on the back of the wing horse, going up to the seven heavens. Now, what are the occasions that they pray? Well, they always pray on Fridays. They also pray during the Ramadan at the Aid al-Fitr and the Aid al-Adha. Uh, at the funeral service, they do the, the, the prayers. Uh, when they're traveling, when they're doing an eclipse, during istikawa, in other words, when they're requiring for rain, and then tajahud, during the night vigil. And what's interesting is whenever they pray, they do the same rit ritual. If you've seen them, you will see they start with their hands above their heads. Uh, what, uh, and then they go down to their knees, and they go on right down to the floor, and they hit their head on the floor. And they come back up to their haunches again. And they do this sometimes twice, sometimes they do this sometimes three times. That's called a raga. And it's fascinating that they do the same thing every day, five times a day. If you see an older gentleman in Islam, you'll, many times you will see that he has a brown mark on his forehead from hitting the head, his head against the floor so many times. And they love to show it to you because it's a great honor to have a callus on your head from hitting your head on the, show, on the floor, proving that you're a religious man. And one thing we know about Islam, they like to show their religiosity openly and publicly. Now, where do they pray towards? They always pray in one direction. They always pray towards Mecca. 
Now, I, I, sometimes I joke with my Muslim friend. So you pray towards Mecca five times a day. Why do you pray towards Mecca? Is God in Mecca? Are you praying towards God? I've never really had a Muslim that could really answer that. They just know that they're supposed to pray because God has told them to. But why Mecca? I always thought Muslims always tell me that God is omniscient and omnipresent, that he's everywhere, which should suggest that you can pray to God in any way, in any direction, right? We can. Our God, we can pray in any direction. We don't just pray in one direction. And certainly, do we pray only five times a day? Do you pray only five times a day? No. Goodness sakes, you can pray as many times as you want. And in any place and in any direction. Why? Because our God's everywhere. Which suggests, really, that the God of Islam is really only an Arab God. Living in Arabia. More specifically, Mecca. Well, we're going to talk about Mecca a little bit later, because that gets even more of a problem. So you've got some problems with the five prayers, with the Salat. Now, there is another prayer that Muslims like to suggest, and that's what they call Dua. Dua is a prayer that can be done at any time, and it's basically a prayer of supplication. It's a prayer where you ask God for something. And I find it fascinating that Muslims like to introduce that into our conversations. Particularly in the West, you will find many Muslims living in the West, whenever they hear us talk about prayer and the fact that we pray to God and we ask Him things and God responds, they say, well, we've got the same thing. It's called Dua. But whenever that is brought up in, in conversation, ask them one simple question. Do they really believe that God, Allah, responds to those prayers? Because if they do, if they believe that dua is a prayer that God can actually respond, then what they are doing is they are, they are saying basically that Allah is limited, that Allah is limited to your request. Allah is limited and is responsive to you as a human. Can Allah ever be responsive to any human? May Allah respond to any human? Absolutely not, because that implies relationship. And Allah, if any, any Muslim knows, Allah may not be in relationship. Because to do so would bring Allah down to earth. To do so would mean that Allah is basically there at our behest. And suddenly you have a God that is responsive to us. Immediately they're going to have to fall, fall back on that. And that's why I find it fascinating. Muslims are claiming this because they're hearing what we have. They are jealous of what we've got. They want what we have. And so they're trying to apply it. They're trying to grasp it. They're trying to hold on to it. They're trying to use it. And they're trying to say the same thing we're saying. But there is no theology to support it. And there certainly is no verse in the Quran that suggests that Allah will ever respond to anybody's request. Because then they do. And they are talking about a God that we have. A God who is in relationship with us, a God who does want our best, uh, our, our, our best, and a God who does respond to our requests. They're talking about the biblical God. They've got, we've got what they want. It's a great way to get into a conversation. In fact, I find it's a great bridge to open up Muslims and to show them what kind of God we're talking about. Our God does respond to prayer. Our God, yes, we can we ask Him anything, and He will come down, and He will respond. That's the beauty of our relationship that we have. But that's a God that we only find here. Not a God that you can find here. We'll talk more about that. Let's go to the third pillar. The Psalm. Or what we know is the Ramadan fast. 
The Ramadan fast is to be performed once every year. We find it in Surah 2, Ayah 183 to 187, gives us a definition, gives us the application of the Ramadan fast. It is done usually on the ninth month. Now, when we say month, we're talking about lunar month, so it's not the same month that we use today. It's a much shorter month, and that's why it keeps moving up the year. As you notice, the Ramadan fast keeps moving up two to three, sometimes four days a year, and because it's following that lunar calendar. And according to... Uh, Islam, it lasts anywhere from 20 to 30, 29 to 30 days. Um, it commences in the morning, and usually what happens, uh, Imam goes outside and he puts a black and a white thread together and he looks at them, and when he can distinguish between which is black and which is white, then he calls the muezzin who gets up in the tower and calls out the call to prayer, and that's the beginning of the fast. And they drink their last tea, and then they fast for the entire day. And that means that they cannot eat any food, and they cannot drink any liquids. In some cases, the very strict Muslims cannot even swallow their own saliva. They may not have any sexual relationships during the daytime hour. Until the evening when the imam goes back outside again and holds that black and white thread together. And when he can no longer distinguish between the black and the white thread, at that time he calls the muezzin who gives the call to prayer. And then the Muslims eat dates and drink uh, some very strong sweet tea. And that breaks the fast and then they can feast. And they do feast. In fact, they eat more during the month of Ramadan than any other month of the year. More is eaten during that month than any other time of the year. Why? Because they're celebrating, making it through the whole day. And it really is a celebration. We don't have anything equivalent in Christianity. I wish we did. The Catholics have something uh, close to it in the time of Lent, but the Muslims really do have a sense of solidarity during the time of Ramadan. And I love being with Muslims during that time. When I was living in Senegal in West Africa in a very hot, hot environment where it got sometimes 40 to 45 degrees during the daytime, and I did the fast with them. I wanted to see what it was like. And I did the fast as they did the fast. And we had to get up early morning, listen to music, and have our last tea. And I remember during those very hot, hot days there in Senegal, where it was not a cloud in the sky, I would get headaches. And I would be dreaming about fountains and waterfalls. And I could not wait to hear the muezzin again. And once that muezzin went, I went to my neighbor and we celebrated the whole evening. And basically the fast in Islam is nothing more than moving the meal times to the evening in the cool of the day, which is the best time to eat anyhow. And we ate and we celebrated. And it was a great sense of solidarity. And my Muslim friends became a lot more religious. And you will find a lot of your Muslim friends become a lot more religious during the Ramadan fast. But when they fast, I always ask my Muslim friends, whenever you fast, do you get closer to God? When you fast, does it change your life? Why do you fast? I always ask my friends, do the same thing. Ask your Muslim friends, why do they fast? They will tell you the only reason they fast is because they've been ordered to do so. They are obedient. Islam means to be obedient. Islam means to be in submission. A Muslim is someone who is obedient. A Muslim is someone who is in obedience. I'm sorry, in submission. So therefore, to do the fast is basically to be in obedience. To build up on your right shoulder all the good deeds. Your good deeds are recorded on this shoulder. Your bad deeds are recorded on this shoulder. Your good deeds are recorded by the recording angel who records from the very time you're born. Every good deed, including the number of times you've done the fast. Every day you do the fast. It's recorded here. To build up these good deeds to basically overwhelm these bad deeds. Whatever the bad deeds may be. That's the only reason they do it. Is that the fast that we see in Isaiah 58? 
Is that the fast that we do? Absolutely not. When we fast, we fast because there's something wrong in our life. There's something that needs to be rectified, do we not? We fast and pray to get closer to God, do we not? We do so because God has asked us to do so. Because in doing that, we take away any one of these, any, all these other outside influences, and we become totally directed on God. We get into relationship with God because of our fasting and prayer. Totally distinct from what Islam's talking about. My Muslim friends, they never talk about getting close to God. To them, it's anathema to even suggest that. How could anybody be close to God? God who is totally distant. God who is totally other. God who is always in heaven, never comes to earth. Who are we to suggest we can get closer to him? And certainly not during the fast. No, the fast has nothing to do with relationship. The fast has everything to do with obedience. It's nothing more than obedience. They've completely missed the whole reason for the fast. We need to introduce it. It's a good bridge to bring them back and to show them what the fast really means, how God instituted it, and how Isaiah and Isaiah 58 basically defined it. Now, we fast for a totally different reason. And I always sometimes with my Muslim friends, I also always like to play the Mickey. I say, okay, so you have a black and a white thread. You sit there and you wait for the black and white thread to be distinct in the beginning of the morning. What happened if you're up in the Nordic Circle? What happened if there's a Muslim up in the Nordic Circle where it takes six months for the sun to come up? You'd be sitting there for six months waiting. Six months waiting. Well, what happened if it's the other side and you're waiting for the sun to go down and you're waiting for the white and black thread? For six months, you're going to have to wait. You're not going to be around. Obviously, when this was instituted back in the 7th century, they were not considering locations too very distant from the equator. Basically, this is an injunction that was instituted near the equator, near Arabia, in fact, in Arabia, and it was only for that locale. Now, what Muslims will say today is that people up in the Nordic Circle, they listen to a radio broadcast from Mecca. And once they hear the muezzin in Mecca give the, muezzin, give the call, then they break their fast. So they follow the same times as Mecca. Well, you can do that if you have a radio. They didn't have a radio in the 7th century. Can you see the dilemma? Obviously, that's how they've been able to recompense. Thank God for the Muslims that Islam didn't move into the Nordic areas in the 7th and 8th century. They would have had a problem with these fasts. Now, that's just a joke. Obviously, this is not that serious. But certainly, you do see that this is probably something that was instituted for the Arabs in the Arabia in the 7th century. And it has nothing to do with the biblical fast. What about the fourth pillar, zakat? Zakat is the tithing that all Muslims must pay, and it's about 2.5%. We are asked to pay 10%, they only pay 2.5%. We find that in Surah 2, Ayah 43, also verse 110, also verse 177, and verse 277 of Surah 2. And in Surah 9, Ayah 5, talks about it, but perfectly. Now, let's talk about that 2.5%. 2.5% is not very much. In fact, it's one-fifth of what we have to pay. Well, a little bit more than that. It's usually paid to the mosque, or it's paid to a government, and they then give it to the poor, or the destitute, or the travelers, or those who are in battle, the mahajidun, mujahideen, or those who are in prison, in bondage. Now, what's interesting is when you look at the history of Islam, when this was first instituted there in the Quran, so instituted in the 7th century, it's fascinating that Muslims only had to pay 2.5%. The people of the book, that's Al-Iqatab, that's us, the Christians and the Jews, never did have to pay the zakat. In fact, we had to pay another tax called the jizya tax. Jizya tax, which is a taxation on everything we owned. And then on top of that, we had to pay another tax 
called the Kharaj tax, which is the tax on all our uh, dwellings, in other words, we had any land. And if you add the Jizya tax with the Kharaj tax, the two that put together came anywhere from 15 to 20 percent. Now, put yourself in their place as a Jew or a Christian or somebody from Ali Kitab or even a pagan living there in 7th century Arabia. Would you rather pay 15 to 20 percent or 2.5 percent? Anybody would want to pay 2.5 percent. What happened was so many Christians and, Muslims and Jews were becoming Muslims so they didn't have to pay the jizya tax or the kharaj tax that it, by the time of uh, 705, the year 705, Al-Hajjaj, who is the governor of Kufa at that time, realized that they were basically they were losing their treasury because they were not getting any taxation. They were no longer getting any jizya or kharaj tax because so many people were converting so they didn't have to pay these basically astronomical fees. And so they stopped conversions. They stopped conversions in 705 so that they would not have this, this weeding out, this, this um, basically this... this uh, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? This uh, treasury that was being depleted. They needed to keep their treasuries intact. And so they had to stop the conversion. It's fascinating. Is that obviously that at the beginning, God never thought that through. Or if there was a God, if there was a God that thought this idea, he didn't think through of what this would do to the power and the influence of the Islamic State. Now, let's move on then to the fifth pillar. And this would be what we call uh, the Hajj or the pilgrimage. Fascinating, once in a lifetime, every Muslim must make that, that pilgrimage back to Mecca. And there's a number of days that this pilgrimage is, takes on. And we know that the first day they must go down to that Kaaba, that square building there in Mecca. Let's talk about Mecca before we get into the Hajj. What about Mecca? Mecca is a curiosity. See, Mecca is a city that is the center of Islam. Mecca is a city that's referred to. Uh, it's referred to in a number of places in the Quran. But more than that, Mecca is a city that, according to the traditions, where Adam and Eve were thrown down to when they were thrown out of the Garden of Eden. In Surah 2, Surah 7, and Surah 20, we see the story of the Garden of Eden. And we know that when they were thrown out of God's, uh, out of the presence of of, of the of of Eden, which was up in space, which is another curiosity. They were thrown down to the city of Mecca, suggesting that the city of Mecca is the oldest city on earth, right? We also know that according to the traditions that Abraham with Ishmael went back to Mecca to rebuild that square building, the Kaaba. Now, he lived in 1900 B.C. So certainly in 1900 B.C., they would have known about Mecca, right? If Abraham and Ishmael were there. It existed in 1900 B.C. We also know that by the time Muhammad came uh, was living in Mecca in the 7th century, well, he was born in 570, the late 6th century, that Mecca was a center of trade north, south, east, and west. And that's why Mecca was so important, and that's why he wanted to get to Mecca, because the Kaaba was there, but also it was the center of all the commerce there in the central part of, of Arabia called the, Hij uh, the Hijaz. So someone should have known about Mecca. Oldest city, one of the most historical cities, the center of trade. There's a researcher uh, in London called Dr. Patricia Krona. She's from Denmark, and she studied there under Dr. John Wandsborough there at the School of Oriental and African Studies, and I know her well. She was my supervisor when I was starting out my doctorate. And she had written a book in 1987 to ask this question about Mecca because she noticed that so much was said about Mecca. It was referred to over and over again, but the difficulty was nobody 
seem to have known about this city in any of the historical documents. Dr. Patricia Corona speaks 15 languages. She speaks all the archaic languages, reads and writes them. And so there she, she decided to do a study on looking back and seeing what we know about Mecca back in the 7th century. But she didn't just go to the 7th century because she didn't find anything and no reference to a city called Mecca. She decided to go back earlier. So she went back to the 2nd century and the 3rd century and the 4th century and the 5th century. She went back to the historians such as Cosmas and Theodoretus and Herodotus. And back to fact, he was much earlier, sorry. Theodoretus, Cosmas, and Procopius. Those are the historians who were writing in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century. They were traveling in that part of the world. They knew the area. They talked about that area. She read their writings in their original language, in the source material. And she found out one very curious thing. None of them knew about a city called Mecca. She went and looked at a map from the 7th century and she noticed that whereas all the trade was coming from India and China and was coming to the Mediterranean up over here, it had to come across the Arabian Sea. And of course, earlier in the 5th and 6th century, it went up the Persian Gulf. But you had the Sassanids, the Persians, who were warring against the Byzantines. And as they warred against each other in the 5th and 6th century, that closed down the Persian Gulf. So therefore, they had to redirect the trade. And they took the trade across the Arabian Gulf over to Aden, which is in Yemen today. You're probably looking on the map behind me. You can see it. Let me see if I can find it. So let's take a look. I want to just show you this, and I hope the cameras can film in. Here is where the trade had to come from, here and here. It used to go right up to the Persian Gulf and to get over to the Mediterranean. The Sassanid world was here. The Byzantines were over here. They were warring back and forth. That trade could not go that direction. It had to be redirected to here. <coughs> it had to be redirected to Aden to go across the western deserts, right across the western plateau, all the way to Gaza in the north. From Aden to Gaza is 1,250 miles. According to what all the Muslim traditions tell us, according to what the trade route theory from Montgomery Watt tells us, is that that was transshipped, taken off board here, and was taken up to Nazran, Sana, to Taif, down to Mecca, back up to Yathrib, to Kaiba, Tabuk, and then on up to Gaza. Now stop and think. Did you see my finger go down a little bit? And Patricia Corona noticed this. She said, hold on a minute. Mecca is not on the trade route. It's down off the plateau about a thousand feet. Why had no one noticed this before? Why had no one noticed that from Taif down to Mecca and then back up to Yathrib, you have to go down a thousand feet, then come back up a thousand feet? What's more, there's only one well in Mecca. It's called a Zamzam well. And then she saw something else. Take a look at that map again. My 10-year-old son saw this. Let's see if you can see it. She noticed that if you're going to take the goods from India across the Arabian Gulf and take them off board here in Aden, go 1,255 miles by land, you've got a problem. The problem is very clear. My 10-year-old son saw it away. I hope you're all seeing it. You've got a waterway right here. Why didn't they stay on board ship? Why did they take them off and put them on land. See, what she knew is that if you take a ton of goods, if you take a ton of goods and go 1,250 miles by sea, which is about this distance here, for the same price, you could only go 50 miles by land, about that distance. It would have been prohibitively expensive to go over land. So she decided to find out if this was true. So she went back to all the trading documents from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th century, and she found exactly that very thing. She saw, found out that all the trade coming between the Mediterranean world and India and China over here, all that trade was maritime. All of it was maritime. There was no reference whatsoever to any Arabs. No name of any Arab names, no reference to a city called Mecca. 
No reference to any other Arabs. In, in fact, what came up over and over again was the name of Adjalus, which is right about here, which is in present-day Eritrea. It was the Eritreans, the people from Adjalus, who controlled the trade. They were maritime. They were seafarers. The Arabs hated the sea. They were camel herders. They were camel drivers. They were slaves on horses. That's the name of the book she wrote. And then she looked at the 15 different spices that supposedly were grown in Mecca that Muslims claim was what made Mecca rich. And she found that there was none grown in Mecca. In fact, of the 15 spices, 13 of them weren't grown in Arabia at all. Only two were grown in Arabia and they were grown down here in what was called the Hadramat, in what is present-day Yemen and Oman. All the other spices were either grown in Africa or they were grown in India and China and they were transshipped across the seaways. She said, why had no one noticed this before? She wrote her book in 1987, Meccan Trade and the Rise of Islam. And then she says, let's see if anybody knows about this city. No one, no one knew about the city. Oh, she found reference from Baghdad, which was called Stesiphon at that time. They had come across the desert sands over to the Hijaz and come to Yathrib, which is the ancient name for what is today Medina. And she found that they knew of some silver mines and they set up some silver mining here. But they knew nothing about Mecca. No one seems to know about this city called Mecca. There's no reference to any city called Mecca until 724. Muhammad died in 632. That's almost 100 years later before anybody knows about this city called Mecca. Now, Muslims have a problem here. If no one knows about a city called Mecca for an over 100 years after, or up to 100 years after Muhammad, then what are you going to do with the Quran? When in Surah 2, Ayah 145 to 149, it refers to Mecca by name. It refers to the fact that the Qibla, the direction of prayer, was to be towards Jerusalem, was then to be redirected back down to Mecca. The Quran is very clear that Mecca did exist. The Quran is very clear that this Qibla, this direction of prayer, was to be redirected back to Mecca in 624. What are you going to do with all the historical data that completely eradicates that? I'm going to leave you hanging there. We're not going to answer that question right now. Can you see the problem with Mecca? Every Muslim now is supposed to go to this city that no one seems to know about until the 8th century. Everybody is supposed to go and circumambulate seven times around this Kaaba. Why seven times? That's interesting. Seven times? Seven is the perfect number. The perfect Jewish number. Once they do the seven times around the Kaaba, then they're supposed to go out to these two hills called Safa and Marwa. Uh, Safa and Mirwan. Sorry, Safa and Marwa. Safa and Mirwa are these two hills. According to tradition... These are the two hills that Hagar ran between when she was looking for water. She left Ishmael there in the sand and ran back and forth between Safa and Marwa looking for water. She did not find it. She came back to Ishmael. When she came back to Ishmael, there was the water burbling at his feet, called the Zamzam well, which is the well, supposedly, that still exists today. So why are they celebrating two defeats? Why are they celebrating something which had no success? Then they go out into the hills of Mina and they go up to the plain of Arafat and they do their sacrifices and they come back to the plain of Mina on the third or fourth day and then they do something else that's very curious. They take anywhere between 49 and 70 stones or pebbles. Multiplication of seven again, the perfect number. And they take these stones and they're to throw them at these pillars. But it's not just one pillar, it's three pillars. Three pillars, three devils. Now, where in the world are there three devils in the Quran? So what devils are they talking about? I've asked my Muslim friend, why are you throwing these stones at three devils? There's only one devil. His name is Iblis, Shaitan. 
One devil. Where did three come from? What does it suggest to you? What it suggests to me is that every one of these practices are not Islamic. They are pagan. These are pagan practices. These are pagan rituals that have been basically adopted, borrowed by Islam, but they have no idea of their meanings. There's no theological meaning for any of them. Some of them look like they may be even Jewish. The fact that they're circumambulating seven times, they use 49 stones or 70 stones. But why in the world are they throwing at three devils? Well, we do know that Allah, the name of Allah, does pre-exist Islam. Now we're going into the six beliefs. We're going to transition into the six beliefs. And to do that, let's look at the first belief. The first belief is the belief in Allah. What is that name Allah? The name of Allah, according to all the first belief of Islam, is a pre-Islamic pagan name. We do know that Allah, the name itself, according to historical uh, research, that that Allah has a father named Hubal and has three daughters, Alat, Almanat, and Aluza. These three daughters are found in Surah 53. They are part of what we know as the Satanic Verses. Ooh, have you heard that before? Samurashti, who wrote the book Satanic Verses. According to what Islamic theology tells us, when Muhammad was in Mecca, he got a revelation that he was permitted, that he permitted people to give honor to these three goddesses, these three cranes. Alat, Almanat, and Al-Uzza, that they were permitted to worship him. These were three of the goddesses that were there included in the Kaaba. When he moved to Medina, Jibril, the angel Gabriel, came to him and says, No, you were usurped, you were seduced by Satan while you were in Mecca. You are not permitted to worship those three cranes. Therefore, excise that out of your revelation. So he excised the idea of worship, but retained the three names. The three names are still in the Quran today, and they are now known as the Satanic Verses. Could these be the three devils that they're throwing stones at? Could these be the three cranes, Alat, Almanat, and Aluza, which were considered to be a seduction among Abraham, and that's why they're throwing the stones at these three devils, which seem to suggest that these are nothing more than pagan rituals that have been incorporated into the Hajj? Who you, 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 can you see what I'm suggesting? I'm not going to say that too much louder. I'm going to let you decide whether or not you want to accept that or not. But can you see, Islam has a real problem here. Because the fifth pillar, the most important pillar, which is the, what every Muslim do once in their lifetime, incorporates practices that were probably borrowed from other surrounding environments in a city which no one seemed to know about. Certainly not on the trade route until 724. We'll leave that there. Let's go to the six beliefs and let's talk about this Allah. Who is this Allah? We know that this Allah is very distant. We know that this Allah is always other. We know that this Allah never comes and enters time and space. We know that this Allah never comes to earth. Is that the same God we see in this book here, the Bible? Absolutely not. And one of the first things when Muslims say we share the same God, we both are worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I say, what is the name of that God? They say his name is Allah. And they say, you know you've got the same name because in the Arabic Bibles, if you look in the Arabic Bibles, it does say Allah for God. That's true. The Christians, the Arabic Christians do you name the name Allah. I say, regardless of the name, let me ask you. Let me ask you one very simple question. Does your God enter time and space? Can Allah ever come to earth? Was Allah ever there at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden? 
Was Allah there in the front of the tent of Mamre with Abraham eating? Was Allah, your Allah, wrestling with Jacob? Did your Allah ever lead the children of Israel out of captivity as a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud during the day? Did your Allah, did he ever come down to Mount Sinai and talk to Moses? In every one of those, they have to say no except for the last. Only in the last case will they answer in the affirmative. It's right there in Surah 20. Ayah 14 to 15. There is Allah in the golden, in the, in the burning bush. We're not talking about the same God at all, are we? The Allah of Islam is a distant God, a totally other God, a God who has nothing to do with man, a God who never comes down to our level, a God who never walks and talks with us. We're going to get into that in much more detail when we get to the hermeneutical key. But can you see, whenever Muslims say that they, we share the same God, be very clear, ask them one simple question. Does your God have a relationship with me? Can your God come down to my level? Can your God walk and talk on earth? Has your God ever done that? If they say no, which they have to say, we do not share the same God. This is not the God of the Bible named Yahweh. The second belief is the belief in prophets. Muslims believe that there are 124,000 of these prophets. Now, don't ask the Muslims what they are or where they are or what their names are. They're, they don't know all 124,000. Not many of them are listed. In fact, when you go to the Quran to look at the list of prophets, you will find only 25. Four of them are not known by anybody. We don't know what their names are. I would imagine, we don't need to do research, I would imagine if we were to scour the Zoroastrian literature, we would probably come across these names. I think these are borrowings from the Sassanid Empire. I think these are Persian bar, uh, prophets. These are probably Zoroastrian prophets. We don't know yet because not, no one has done any homework on this. We've not done research. One of the, of the prophets is named as Muhammad, so therefore he would not be a biblical prophet. But all the other 19 to 20 prophets that are listed in the, in the Quran are all biblical prophets. They are prophets that we know about in the Bible. Ibrahim, Abraham, Moise, Moses, Yahya, John the Baptist, Issa, Jesus. These are the names we know about. And when you look at those prophets, you will see that they are not the same stories that we have in the Bible. And here's a curiosity. Take a look at the stories that you find in the prophets here, and you will find that they contradict the stories we have here. Let me just give you some examples. Let's give you, in fact, I could give you lots of examples. Let me just give you one example. Let's give you the example of Solomon, the prophet Solomon. Now, we know he was a king. According to the Quran in Surah 27, Ayah 17 to Ayah 44. So, Book 27, verse 17 to 44. Solomon marches birds to get ready for battle. He, he would march these birds back and forth every day so they could fly up over the enemy with a stone in their talons and the stone would drop on the enemy. And the name of the, of the enemy that they're going to kill is, is imprinted on that stone. So he would march his birds every day. Basically, this is the first air force ever invented. This is the first air force there by Solomon. And he would march his birds. And one day while he was marching his bird, he noticed that one of the birds was missing, the hoopa bird. His favorite bird was not there being marched. And he looked and he said, where is my hoopa bird? And suddenly he looks to the south and he sees the hoopa bird flying, comes and lands at his feet. And the hoopa bird tells him, he talks to birds, and says, there's this gorgeous queen down in the country of Sheba. You've got to go see her. He says, well, I don't have the time to do that. You go, go, and, go and bring her up to me. So the hoopah bird flaps on back down to Sheba, lands at the, the feet of the queen of Sheba, and talks to her. She talks to birds and says, you've got to come up to the north, and you've got to see this great king up there in Jerusalem. So she comes with all her retinue, comes up to Jerusalem, comes into the throne room, 
Solomon is sitting on the throne, according to Surah 27, Ayah 17 to 44, and there in front of him on the floor is a mirror. It's a mirrored floor. Now, they don't have that technology in Sheba, and the queen of Sheba has never seen a mirrored floor. She thinks it's water, so she picks up her skirts to keep them from getting wet. And that's where the story ends at verse 44. It's a great story, isn't it? Is it in your Bible? It's not in my Bible. I'd love to know where the story comes from. So we've scoured, we've looked around, and we've found we know exactly where the story comes from. In fact, we've been able to do this with almost all the stories in the Quran. This particular story comes from the second Talmud of Esther, an apocryphal account, an apocryphal Jewish account written in the second century A.D., written basically by the Jews for entertainment for their children. Almost word for word, exactly the same that we see in Surah 27, Ayah 17 to 44, except for one salient difference. When the Queen of Sheba comes to the entrance of the throne room and she's about to walk across the mirrored floor, thinking that it's water, she picks up her skirt. When she picks up her skirt, her legs are showed and they are, there's hair on her legs. Solomon, upon seeing her hairy legs, cries out in surprise. Now that part is not incorporated into the Quranic text. That has been left out for very obvious reasons proving that it's nothing more than a borrowing. And when you look at all these prophets, when you look at all their stories, you will find that almost every one of them are borrowed. Surah 21, the story of Abraham, who wakes up in the middle of the night, he sees all these idols, he gets angered by these idols, he takes a large idol, and he destroys all the smaller idols, goes back to bed, wakes up the next morning, the people see all these destroyed idols, they go to Abraham and said, what have you done? He said, don't talk to me, talk to the big idol. Well, they can't talk to the big idol, so they take Abraham and they throw him into a fiery pit. The angel of the Lord comes down and saves him from the fiery pit. That's a great story. Is it in your Bible? It's not in my Bible. So where does it come from? It comes from the Talmud of Rabbah. The Talmud of Rabbah, again, another apocryphal writing written in the second century, which is exactly the same story. It's a confusion, really, of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And instead of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it puts Abraham in their place. It was never considered to be authoritative. The Jews never considered it a, a canonical. That's why they never included it into their canon. And yet it finds its way into the Quran. Basically, these are borrowed stories. These are apocryphal writings, Jewish apocryphal writings incorporated into the Quran. And they never should be there. Look at Jesus. Jesus, the great, second greatest of all prophets. Story after story about his childhood. He fashions some clay, puts him, makes him into birds, blows them, and they fly up into the air. Where does that story come from? It's not in my Bible. Does Jesus ever do that as a child? No. We know exactly where these stories, almost all these stories about the fact that he didn't die on the cross, the fact that he did not, he was not God, the fact that um, almost all these stories that talk about uh, speaking from the cradle and saying what his mission is, which we don't find in the Bible, almost all these stories come from sectarian writings, Christian sectarian writings, Docetic writings, monarchic writings, Gnostic writings, Coloridian writings. They're all but borrowed. All of them have been borrowed and incorporated into the Quran, somewhere between the 7th and 8th century. They've got the right names, they've just got the wrong stories. If they'd only come back to the Bible, they would have found the real stories, but they forgot one salient part. See, the Old and the New Testament were not translated into Arabic until the late 8th century. Therefore, they didn't have access to the authentic account. They didn't know who really Abraham was. So they were, therefore, they were only dependent on these apocryphal writings, all of which were passed down orally from generation to generation by all these peoples. And it is these stories they heard, it is these stories that they wrote, and it is these stories that we find in the Quran. They've got the wrong stories. We know who wrote them. 
We know when they were written. We know why they were written. They were all written by men, many of them Jews and sectarian Christians. And they, none of them come from God. Thank God for the research we're doing. Thank God for source criticism. We're able to eradicate every one of these prophets, proving they've got the wrong men. They've got the wrong story. They need to come back to the real story. It's right here in the Bible, long before these other apocryphal accounts were written. Every prophet has a book. Every prophet, therefore, is to be given a revelation. And when you look at the revelation, you will see that there's four major revelations. You have the Taurat of Moses. You have the Zabur of, of course, David, the Psalms. You have the Injil, which is supposed to come from Jesus. And then you have the Quran, which is the last revelation that comes from Muhammad. Four great prophets, four great books. The problem is, they claim that these are not the former three. The Taurat we have here is not the same as the Taurat that was given to Moses. It's been corrupted. The Zabur we have here is not the Zabur that was given to David. That's been corrupted. And certainly the angel is not the angel that was given to Jesus. In fact, we don't even have the right names. Jesus' name is not on any of them. They're now named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Who are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? They're not prophets, therefore we don't have to accept them. These have been corrupted. These have been deleted. These have been accreted. These have been changed. And that's why they don't accept the authentic gospels, the authentic books. We'll get into that a little bit more later when we look at the Quran itself. But certainly what we do know is that the Quran itself, the last and final revelation, this book, they claim, comes from Muhammad. But how do we know it came from Muhammad? I'd love to know who wrote this book down. I always ask my Muslim friends, so you say this comes from Muhammad. Is he the author? No, he couldn't read or write. So who wrote it down? What we do know is it was written by a number of different men. We know that this particular recension that we have in our hand today was written by a man named Zaid ibn Thabit. He was a scribe of Muhammad, but he did not write it. This is not the, the first recension. This is the second recension. The first recension, the first time he wrote this down was in 634. That was then given to Hafsa, one of the wives of Muhammad, was kept under her bed. About roughly 18 to 20 years later in 650, it had to be brought up again by Uthman because there were many different variations. We know that there were at least three other codices, metropolitan codices. We have the Codex of Ubla ibn Kab, which became very popular in Damascus, the Codex of Ibn Masud, which became very popular in Baghdad, the Codex of Ibn Musa, which became very popular in Basra, and then of course this Codex, which became Zaid ibn Thabit's second Codex, because according to Al-Buhari, if you look at Al-Buhari in volume number 6, Hadith number 509 and 510, it refers to the fact that they had to bring back the copy that was give, given to Hafsa. They had to bring it back again. And Zaid ibn Thabit, along with three others, Zubair, Alas, and Hadith, the four of them, had to rewrite it. How do you, why do you rewrite something if it's perfect? As Muslims claim this is perfect. You don't rewrite something that's perfect, you just copy it. And then it says, if you have any doubt to rewrite it in the Qurayshi dialect, I'm not even going to get into that. There were no dialectic writings in the 7th century. Dialects, in order to have a dialect in Arabic, you have to have vowelization. You have to have the dhamma, the kasra, the fatah. Vowels didn't even come into existence until the late 8th century. How can you have any vowelization, therefore, in the 7th century? And then they did a very curious thing, according to Al-Buhari, volume 6, 5, 10. They took all the other remaining manuscripts and they burned them. Why in the world do you burn manuscripts? Unless they disagree. It looks like there was not just one Quran. There was a multiplicity of Qurans. We won't even get into that today. What about 
number four, belief in the angels. According to Islam, there is Jibril, the great angel who is the messenger. There is Mikhail, who comes from the light. There is Israfil, the angel of resurrection. There is Israel, the angel of death. There is Iblis, Satan, who is referred to seven times, and the fact that he is, uh, his references to his sin there in the Quran. And then there are these curious little creatures called jinn. Who are these jinn? They're not angels. They're not humans. They're somewhere in between. They're made from fire, but they are a curiosity that I've never had a Muslim that is able to help me with. But what we do know is that there are also the recording angels who record then your good deeds on the shoulder and record your bad deeds on the shoulder. And then when the records, when you die, the records are taken off your two shoulders and they're put on a scale and they are weighed and hopefully your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. Now, I'd like to know a little bit more about these angels. Muslims have a hard time to defining. Are they heavenly creatures or are they earthly creatures? Or are they somewhere in between? There is no room for in between. If God's up here and man's down here, what is in between? These angels? These jinn? Huge problems with these jinn. Let's go to the next one, and that is in predestination. According to Islam, according to Surah 460 and Surah 17, Ayah 175, and Surah 29, 25, Ayah 29, Allah is in control of every thought you do and every action you make. He predestines every act and He predestines every thought. If that is the case, then how can you be responsible for your bad deeds? How can you be responsible for that which is written on your left shoulder? If Allah is responsible, looks like He is the one that is worthy of guilt, not you. How can you therefore pay the penalty of something that you have no responsibility for? Ask your Muslim friends that. According to Surah 7, Ayah 178 to 179, it is Allah that leads you astray. He even basically takes you and forces you to do your evil acts. Therefore, Islam is nothing more than a deterministic religion based on a deterministic God. There is no free will. And that's why every time you say anything to a Muslim or have a contract with a Muslim, they always say, Inshallah, if God wills it. I cannot do it unless God wills it for me first. Predestination. Well, you might say we have the same thing in Christianity, do we? Yeah, we do have predestination. But in predestination in Christianity is only ever relegated to salvation. We don't, any of us, believe that God dictates all our actions and dictates all our thoughts. No. The only predestination I know of is that of whether or not God saves us or lets us be damned. And that's a debate that's happening within Christianity. Some believe we are responsible for that decision. Some believe God is responsible. And that's a healthy debate that has continued right since the Reformation and will continue until God comes again. Nowhere, nowhere do I know of any Christian that believes that God dictates all our choices or all our acts. No, we have a God that gives us a free will, a God that allows us to choose, a God that allows us to reject Him, and a God that allows us to accept Him. That's one of the beauties we have of God. Let's get to the last belief, and this is the belief in judgment. Remember I said that those recording angels take off your records, your good and your bad records. They put them on a scale. According to Surah 4, Ayah 74, and Surah 47, Ayah 46, according to what we knew know, we do not have an assurance, we only have a hope. Except for those who participate in jihad. See, the only people that have an assurance of salvation are, according to Surah 4, uh, Surah 47, Ayah 46, are those who participate in jihad. And it says, if they should die or if they shall live, great is their reward on this day, for they shall be in paradise. 
That is the only people that know. They're the only ones that know where they're going, that have an assurance of going to heaven. Can you then see why there are so many young men and women who are signing up to basically destroy themselves and many others as possible and suicide bombings? Because they know that they're going straight to heaven because the Quran tells them so. For the others, you are put on a scale. Your good deeds hopefully outweigh your bad deeds. No one really knows. If your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you're given the choice of going across a razor-sharp bridge called the Sirat. And as you're walking across the Sirat, you can be thrown down to hell at any time. So no Muslim knows whether or not they're going to make it across into paradise. They only have a hope that they can make across. That's a great way for you Christians to go and open up that whole discussion. Go to your Muslim friend and ask him, do you have an assurance of salvation? I do. I have an assurance of salvation. No Muslim can say that they have an assurance unless they participate in jihad and die. There is no assurance of salvation in Islam. There is only a hope. A hope that you'll make it across that razor-sharp bridge. Even the most righteous Muslim can still be thrown down to hell. It's all up to God. It's all up to Allah. And what do they find on the other side? In order to do that, you need to open up to Surah 55 and Surah 56. It's a very carnal paradise. It's a paradise of just wine, women, and song. A paradise where there's rivers of waters, palm trees, fruit trees, rivers of wine. Rivers of wine. The very thing that Muslims are not permitted to touch in this life, they're going to swim in in the other life. And then there are these hoodies, these women who are perpetual virgins. Who knows where they come from? They certainly don't come from the wives or the daughters or the mothers of the believers because we know that the majority of those in heaven are men and the majority of those in hell according to the traditions are women so therefore who are these hoodies who are there to wait upon the men are they created people we don't know you need to ask your Muslim friends this no one seems to know who these hoodies are but what we do know is that that paradise is a very carnal paradise it's a paradise of nothing more than wine women and song now take a look at these five pillars and take a look at these six beliefs. They're very simple to understand, aren't they? But they have many difficulties. These beliefs seem to be borrowed from other sources. They're not complete in the Quran. There's not five prayers, there's only three prayers. The Shahada is not complete. Half of it here, the other half here. The prayers when they do are finally completed, they are not completed for another 200 years after the Quran was written. When you look at the Hajj, you look at the Hajj and you see the Hajj is nothing more than an amalgamation of many different pagan rituals that are brought together with no theological importance. Muslims don't know why they have to throw those, those 49 to 70 stones at those three pillars. They don't know why they have to run back and forth between the Marwa and the Safa uh, uh, hills. They have no idea why they have to circumambulate around the Kaaba seven times. They don't know any of this. They're just told to obey. That's all that they're told to do. They must obey, do these five pillars. It's very simple, isn't it? Seemingly very rational. But to me, it makes no real sense. And that's exactly what Islam's all about. They believe in a God, Allah, but they don't know really what Allah means. It really means the God. It's a generic term, the God, nothing more, nothing less. It's a God that is found in pre-Islam, in pagan rituals, a God who has a father named Hubal, three daughters named Alat, Al-Manat, and Al-Uzza. They are to believe in all these prophets, but these prophets' stories, they are found in the Quran. They do not correspond with the, with the, the prophets that we see in this book. 
completely different stories, superfluous stories, borrowed stories from Jewish apocryphal writings and Christian sectarian writings. They talk about the books they are right, but the four books we do know, the only four books we do know, three of them they don't accept because they don't correspond with the last remaining book. Oh, they talk about angels, but they can't define them. They don't know really whether or not they're in between or above. They don't know if they're heavenly, if they're earthly. And they don't know what to do with the jinn. These, these creatures that listen to the Quran being recited. And every time you see meteorites going across the sky, those are chasing the jinn away, which means every time you look up in the sky, you can see when the jinn are trying to listen to the Quran being recited. Especially when we go through a tail of a comet. When you see hundreds of these meteorites going through the air, that's when the jinn are listening, seem to suggest. <laughs> And they talk about predestination, a God who dictates every one of their acts, who dictates every one of their thoughts, who basically gives them no choice. That's not a God I want to follow. That's not a God I see in this, this scriptures here. And then they tell me that once I have done all these good deeds, I still don't know whether I'm going to get to heaven. Hopefully, as I'm walking across that razor-sharp bridge, hopefully I'll make it across. But what do I find there? Not God. Wine, women, and song. The very same thing I can get in Las Vegas. I still find it over there, but even more in abundance. Who cares about... Sorry, women, but I don't really care about wine, women, and song. I want to find God. He's not there. Not in this book. He's in this book. The God in this book is nothing more than a, a God who is distant. A God who is totally other. A God who is a dictator. That controls every one of my actions and every one of my thoughts. I don't want that kind of a God. I want a God that loves me. I want a God that comes down to my level. I want a God that, yes, dies for me. I want a God that's relational. That kind of God I only find here. And that kind of God, when I get to heaven, I know I'm assured of getting there because I know what he did 2,000 years ago. Because of that God, I'm not going to be sitting there swimming in rivers of wine. I'm going to be walking and talking with my God again. Isn't that the kind of God you want? That's the kind of God we have. That's the kind of God we need to introduce to these people. Talk about the beliefs. Boy, we don't need six beliefs. We have hundreds of beliefs that are superior to what they have. We don't have to do these five practices. We can pray to God at any time, at any place, in any direction, because we have a God that's relational. A God that comes to our level. That's the kind of God I want to serve. That's the kind of God they need to know. That's the kind of belief I believe in. Praise the Lord for it.